what makes me happy? What do I want in my house? What do I want to wear in my closet? You know what I mean? Like, and, and we just, so many of us just try and fit ourselves into these ideals that have been um, presented to us. And, and it's, you know, it results in a lot of excess, a lot of debt, um, a lot of, you know, acquiring a lot of things that you don't need. <laughs> um, and it's, you know, I really want to challenge people to, to, you know, think outside of that box. Hi, this is Danae. I'm the founder of Simple Families. Simple Families is an online community for parents who are seeking a simpler, more intentional life. In this show, we focus on minimalism with kids, positive parenting, family wellness, and decreasing the mental load. My perspectives are based in my firsthand experience raising kids, but also rooted in my PhD in child development. So you're going to hear conversations that are based in research, but more importantly, real life. Thanks for joining us. Hi there, Danae here. That is the voice of Christine Platt, otherwise known as the Afro Minimalist. Christine just released a brand new book, The Afro Minimalist Guide to Living with Less. Today, Christine shares a little bit about her story and how the aesthetics of mainstream minimalism, the simplified white spaces with the Scandinavian style furniture, wasn't the kind of home and life that felt right for her. Instead, Christine decided to do things her own way. And for her, that was curating a life with less influenced by the African diaspora. I truly enjoyed Christine's book, and as I share in this episode, I found it to be both a window and a mirror. It was a mirror in that I saw a lot of myself in her story, but also a window. As Christine opens the door to her culture and community as a Black woman to help us understand how minimalism can look different in marginalized communities. I know that you're going to be inspired by my chat with her today. Before we get into this episode, here's a one-minute word from today's sponsor. The sponsor for today is PrepDish, and I know I've been talking about PrepDish for a couple years now, but this year has been a big year because they have transitioned into providing super-fast meal plans every week. These meal plans are my lifeline. Right now, PrepDish has a special offer. If you sign up for a subscription before the end of June, you get a free bonus menu. And this bonus menu is what they're calling the fastest meal plan ever. And I will attest, it is in fact very fast and simple. And among the other things, my family was a huge fan of the shrimp tostadas. For me, meal planning was so overwhelming. And PrepDish has changed that. It has made it easy and simple and almost entirely stress-free. So try it out. Go to PrepDish.com forward slash families. You'll get two weeks free. That's preptish.com forward slash families. Thanks again for tuning in and supporting the sponsors that keep this show running. I hope you enjoy my chat with Christine today. Hi, Christine. Thanks for chatting with me today. Hi, happy to be here. So I have heard you say a few different times that you are not a grown woman. You are a growing woman. And I love that (laughs) because yeah. We're just changing all the time, right? And it takes so much pressure off, you know? It's always like, oh, if you're grown, you should know how to do this. Or if you're grown, you should understand that. And it's like, actually, I'm growing. Like, there's still 
so much to learn, so much to, you know, acknowledge and understand about the world. And so, yeah, I like saying that it just takes a lot of pressure off, but I'm always like, may I always be growing. I want to never be fully grown, you know? Right. And ever since I, I heard that, I've been thinking every time I say grown ups, that term to my kids who are five and seven, I always uh-huh. think, you know, I don't really like saying that anymore. Let's go with adults yeah. because grown ups yeah. just infers we've got it all figured out. And we just don't. Right. <laughs> totally. <laughs> and I love your new book. Your brand new book is out. Um, tell us about that. It's not your first book. It is not. But it's so funny. Everyone says, is this your first book or how many books have you written? And I'm like, uh, over two dozen. And they're like, what? Um, but those are all children's books. Um, and most children's books are in series. Um, so for example, uh, the Anna and Andrew series uh, was one of my, my last babies, my last little book babies. Um, but that's 16 of the books right there. Okay. <laughs> so um, the Afro-Minimalist Guide to Living with Less is my second adult work and my first adult nonfiction. Great. Well, congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I'm very excited. So I, one of the things when I was reading your book that I identified with so much, um, which I do want to say that for your, with your book, I very much saw myself in a lot of it. Um, I saw you were, you were a mirror for me, but also a window because I love how you Mm. tell your story. And so much of that resonated with me, but I also learned so much about black culture and how you see and view minimalism in a different way based on your culture. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I love that. But I think the thing that I identified with first and foremost was your love of a deal. (laughs) Because yeah, very true to me. I think that was, oh my goodness, that got me. So many of us. Right. And, um, you know, that's, that's how I came up with my little mantra. It's not a deal if you don't need it. Like I literally have to say that to myself some when I'm in the store sometimes, but yeah, I mean, I think, you know, like anytime we pause and just sort of reflect on like, okay, why am I buying this? Like that pause is just so powerful. Um, because you know, without it, we do, we're like, oh, I'm getting a deal or, oh, look at this. Right. Um, And so learning to pause, learning to, um, you know, have mantras, like it's not a deal if you don't need it. Or my latest one is, (laughs) what's the why behind the buy, Christine, right? Like you have to, it's a lot of self-talk, you know? Um, And I think like when you pause to just ask yourself, uh, ask yourself those questions, you know, you realize like, I don't really need this. Right. Or like reminding you is, is it, am I really getting a deal if I don't need it or am I spending unnecessarily? Right. That pause is so powerful to just sort of think, think about, you know, why am I making this purchase? Which is why for me, minimalism is so less about aesthetics and so much more about just being a conscious consumer, you know, being very mindful and intentional about what you um, buy and what you welcome into your life. Yes. Now I spent my first adult years out of college in Washington, DC, which is where you live. And mm-hmm. I very much remember, I spent a lot of time at Filene's basement. Do you know Filene's basement? <laughs> I do know Filene's basement. <laughs> okay. It's not around anymore, right? There are still a few left. I think I saw one in Annapolis a while ago, but yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. (laughs) Right. So Filene's basement for anyone that's not familiar is kind of like, 
a much grander TJ Maxx. It's bigger mm-hmm. and better. And the deals are just <laughs> very hard to pass up. Um, and I acquired a lot of stuff because I just found too many deals that I could not yeah. pass by. Um, yeah. and I, I, I've reflected back to my own childhood and tried to figure out what was that about? But I think I always viewed sort of this natural progression of life as you study hard. If you do mm-hmm. you go to college, you get a good job, you make a lot of money and then you buy mm-hmm. a lot of stuff. Is, yeah. Does that resonate with you? Yeah. I mean, I feel like that is, you know, a, a more popular version of the dream that so many of us have been, you know, sold, right. Um, you know, throw in, you need to be married by this age and have kids by this age. And like, that is like the classic American life or even dream for some people. Right. Um, and I think once you do sort of this self-discovery and do a little inquiry, you know, I do have some guided questions and stuff in the book, you start to realize like, what am I doing out of familial or societal pressure versus what I want to be doing, right? Like what is my authentic version of life? What do I want for myself? What do I see for myself? And I think for so many people, it's just not something that they've been encouraged to do, or if they tried to do it, you know, their dreams were shot down, their ideals were like, you're ridiculous, right? Um, And I think, you know, for me, minimalism and has been, of course, learning to live with less, but also just learning what makes me happy, right? Like independent of what uh, society says, independent of what, you know, family and friends think I should be doing, right? Like what makes me happy? What do I want in my house? What do I want to wear in my closet? You know what I mean? Like, and, and we just, so many of us just try and fit ourselves into these ideals that have been um, presented to us. And, and it's, you know, it results in a lot of excess, a lot of debt, um, a lot of, you know, acquiring a lot of things that you don't need. <laughs> um, and it's, you know, I really want to challenge people to just, you know, think outside of that box that so many of us um, have either been put into or, or walked into <laughs> unknowingly, you know? Yeah. And that path is not linear, which you share in your book, your career path has been anything but linear. Tell, tell us about it. So you're not just an author, right? You're a lawyer and a historian and so many things. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, but you know, I think so many people are right. I mean, you know, I, I I think it's so important to reinvent yourself as many times as you want to, right? Like when we were, again, going back to like growing and not grown, right? Like you grow out of things, right? You pursue new interests and passions. Um, For me, I, you know, majored in uh, African-American history and studies in undergrad, as well as in grad school. Um, I then went on to law school and I remember coming out of law school and our country was not in the space that it's in now, (laughs) right? It was in the space of like, what are you going to do with a black studies degree? You know? Um, And I remember, you know, having to sort of structure my resume that, you know, have it focus more on my social sciences aspect of the degree rather than black studies, right? Or moving things around so that, you know, it's like, let's focus on your law issues. So people won't, you know, and all of that, it just felt 
so inauthentic at the time, but you know, it's like, oh, I guess this is what I have to do to, you know, <laughs> get a job. Um, and then, you know, you get the job and then sometimes you're really unhappy, right? And one of the things that most people do to mask their unhappiness is by things because things can bring us a sense of immediate gratification, instant gratification, right? But it's rarely lasting. So even like by scoring a deal and being excited about, my gosh, getting a deal. It's like, by the time I got home, (laughs) that throw had worn off and that stuff would just sit in my closet, you know? So yeah, I, I encourage, you know, as many people as possible to not feel that they're like stuck in this space, um, literally or figuratively, right? (laughs) Um, like really getting them to understand that it's okay to reinvent yourself. It's okay to keep growing. It's okay to say, you know, wow, this job no longer serves me the same way this outfit no longer serves me. Right. And being willing to do and take the necessary steps, um, you know, to, to move on to something better that does. Yeah. I read this article last year, or I guess it would have been in January during, um, was it January of this year that Harry and Megan announced they were departing from the Royal family. Was that 2021? No, that was 2020. Yeah. I was going to say, I feel like that was the year before. I remember reading this article around, yeah, 2020. I read this article where, um, someone wrote Megan got the dream job, right? Princess, the dream job. And then she found out that the job sucked and she didn't want it anymore. And she's choosing a new job. And I just love that because I thought, you know, even the jobs that people could only dream of don't always turn out to be what we want them to be. And we're all allowed to pivot on any level. We are allowed to pivot. Absolutely. Um, And not only that, we should, right? I mean, I think that's part of the growth that people rarely, you know, talk about that pivot can be hard. It can be uncomfortable. You know, you are, there's always people that are like, what are you doing? Don't pivot. Don't leave. You know, you, you have a six figure job or you're the princess, right? Like how could you leave? Um, and again, it goes back to at the end of the day, you really have to do what is best for you. But yeah. unless you do sort of that inquiry and self-discovery to sort of figure out your authentic self, um, you know, you will keep fitting yourself into, you know, other people's dreams, ideals of, of what should, of what your life should be like. Yeah. And I think a lot of us feel like by the time we have kids, we should have that all figured out. And (laughs) that's not the case. I think that growing Mm -mm. part, I mean, kids just add to that growing, like they push us to grow even more than we were already growing probably. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, children, you know, I'm a mom and my daughter is getting ready to go off to college, which is wild. Um, But, you know, parenting just taught me so much about myself, right? (laughs) Your children are mirrors. Um, They are recorders. (laughs) They are all the things, right? And, um, you know, I, I think, you know, this idea that you will have it all figured out by the time you're a parent is just unrealistic because parenting is going to present a new set of responsibilities and obligations and, you know, wonderful experiences for you to, again, keep growing and growing, grow into, right? 
Um, and so you always laugh when people are like, I'm, you know, I'm having, I'm grown, I'm having my first baby or whatever. And I'm just like, oh, you have so much to learn. <laughs> yeah. You know, I love it. You talked about when you went to law school, got a job in law and you were working long hours and you wrote, of course, I felt like the worst mother in the world when you were working long hours. And then just three pages later, you talk about how you quit your job to be a full-time creative and you were determined to be a fully present mother and wife and you failed Mm. miserably at all of it. Oh my gosh. It was awful. It was awful. (laughs) And I think it's so powerful to hear other women say this, that that balance is never perfect, right? It's never, ever, ever perfect. Right. And I have friends who, I mean, their sole responsibility is, you know, being a full-time parent and partner. And even then, right. So it's not even the competing priorities, right. There's always going to be something. And I think for me, I had romanticized all of it, right. I had romanticized what it would be like if I wasn't working and I could just write whenever I wanted to, right. I had romanticized how much, you know, smoothly our mornings and evenings would be if I, you know, didn't have to go into work and I could stay home and I could make dinner. And like, I just had this whole vision and fantasy that was like, so not what I was able to do. And like, so unrealistic in retrospect. Um, I mean, my creativity did not comply with my, I'm going to write between nine and 12. <laughs> it was like, Oh, you think so? Doesn't you work know? Like that. It doesn't work like that. You know, um, there would be evenings where I would like just be getting into the rhythm of, of writing, um, you know, this, this novel that I was working on, that was so challenging for me. And I'd look up and I'm like, Oh crap. Like it's time to start dinner. Right. Like there's always, there was just, Oh, it was such, um, an awakening for me, (laughs) Uh, especially as someone who, you know, I know type a is not really a thing, but I mean, I just pride myself prided myself on being like very structured and regimented and like, oh, I'm going to knock this out the park. I'm going to be the best writer and mother and wife ever. And it was like, actually, you're not. (laughs) (laughs) You, but you were the best mother and wife for your family. Right. And I I always like to remind myself of that. Yeah. I, I was the best for my family and more importantly, like I was the best for me at that time. Right. Um, And of course, I didn't look at it. This is all in retrospect. I mean, you know, when you go through these things, often in the moment, you just feel like a total failure, right? And it it just was not true. And I look back on that time, and I'm just like, I can't even believe that I did everything that I was able to do (laughs) back then. But in the moment, you know, it just felt like, oh, you know, the one time you don't stop writing in time enough to make dinner, you know, and they come in and like, oh, I'm sorry, dinner isn't ready. You know, like in hindsight, like no one even remembers those moments. Yeah. Those are not the moments that your children remember. Those are not the moments that your spouses remember, you know? Um, And so, yeah, I'm, I'm big on extending, extending ourselves some grace through all of it, you know? I love that. And so you found minimalism, around the time that you had decided to shift to being a full-time creative and that was becoming overwhelming or wasn't quite working out the way that you wanted it? Well, yeah. I mean, I think what happened, I mean, when I started the minimalist journey, I mean, I was still 
romanticizing. <laughs> you know, it was it was started it was starting to become clear that it was a fantasy, but I was still like, ah, oh, I'm it's gonna work out, you know. But I remember what it was for me was really it was the first time that I had spent that much time at home, you know, because when we were both working. Um, you know, you get what a few minutes in the morning, you're out of the house all day, you know, you pick up the kids, you're, you know, back home, homework, dinner, you go to bed. So we spent, like most people, we spent most of the time outside of our homes than we did in our home. And um, so it wasn't until I was not working and home all day that I realized like, there is just so much of this house that we are not using. There are so many unnecessary things <laughs> in this house. And that's sort of what like prompted my journey and started my journey. And then when it became very clear that my writing and creativity was never going to conform <laughs> to a structured schedule and that I actually was not a big fan of cooking dinner every night, um, I started to focus more of my energy on, on uh, minimizing our home as opposed to um, trying to pursue these other endeavors, which were the reason why I had left work in the first place. You know, it's just yeah, like a comedy of errors, you know? <laughs> that resonates. I actually found minimalism when I was supposed to be writing my dissertation and yeah. decided that, that I needed to minimize everything that I owned before I could write a, a dissertation. <laughs> so funny yeah I mean create projects back on it I know I know so yeah so that's how that happened and then um you know it really you know it's really what prompted me to like when I was working on this book last year just thinking about what do I wish that I had had known right what would I have done differently and um you know really having a holistic approach to decluttering I think is so powerful I mean I did what most people do you know like I look at the beautiful images on Pinterest you know long enough for me to say that's it I'm gonna you know I'm gonna make my house look like that and then you know next thing I knew I was just standing in front of a large pile of stuff there was piles over there and there were piles over there and I just wish that I had you know had this process of like Let's talk about how to acknowledge your overconsumption first, right? Let's really, let's really talk about that. Let's talk about forgiving yourself. You know, no one ever talks about all of these emotions that come up when you're decluttering, um, you know, and, and then like, then you can jump into letting go. And then also I wish someone had told me, you know, what to do with my donations, right? And so that's how I came up with step four, paying it forward. Um, but yeah, I went through, oh, I went through a lot <laughs> during that time. I mean, I really thought it could be a weekend warrior mission and it is, that is just not the case. Yeah. yeah. And I think at some point in Marie Kondo's famous first book, she says that you declutter once and then you won't have to do it again. And I always raised an eyebrow at that because <laughs> for me, it has felt like this ongoing process and ongoing journey. Yeah, I mean, I am five years in. Um, and yeah, I mean, I feel like it is an ever evolving process. Again, it goes back to the growing, right? Um, and so yeah, I mean, you never want to go through that first, like that first round is always the worst, right? Um, but, you know, in terms of like never wanting to do it again, I, 
I don't, I don't see that. Right. I mean, I, I, again, as our lives keep changing and evolving, um, you know, you'll, you'll have other rounds. It'll never be like that first, yeah. <laughs> you know, that first acknowledgement process. I get that part. Um, and what I do agree with though, is that you'll never, what you'll never do again is allow your space to get to that level. You know what I mean? Like you'll, you'll always, I like, I'll always remember how I, how I felt standing in front of that big pile, looking at all the other piles, thinking of all the other closets and drawers and everything that I had to go through. And I'm like, I know I will never allow myself to get to that place again, you know? And that shame that comes with seeing all the waste that you have created right in front of you, you know, the, yeah, the money you wasted, the resources, all of it. Yeah. But you know, I've really, I've been trying to find ways to really shift that language, you know, especially when we talk about forgiveness. Um, You know, I, I have start, I, 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 cause I used to say, oh, I used to, I used to waste so much money or, oh, I made so many mistakes, you know, and now more like, you know, I made some, you know, probably not the best choices at the time, or, you know, I had some experiences that taught me valuable lessons, right? Like even just the shifting of that language allows us um, just some freedom to, to, again, extend some grace to ourselves and forgive ourselves, right? I mean, you really can't hold yourself, um, you know, as accountable (laughs) for what you didn't know. Right. But it's like, once, you know, and once you have the knowledge and once you have the tools, right. It's like, okay, I know better now. I'm going to do, I'm going to do something different. I forgive myself for, you know, the choices that I made in the past. And I am committed to making different choices going forward. Right. Like that's so much more powerful, which is why I, you know, I felt it was so important when we talk about minimalism to talk about the emotions that come up. And how you will have to forgive yourself and others sometimes in order to move forward, right? Because you can stand there in front of that pile of stuff with your emotions and having all the guilt and shame and anger and think about how much money you waste. You can do that for a long time. <laughs> I did, you know, um, and I had to forgive myself. That's the only way to move forward. I remember thinking, you know, I spent my first 30 years accumulating all this stuff I didn't need. And now I get the opportunity to spend the next 30, 40, 50 years doing better and making better choices. And mm-hmm. you can only move forward, right? You can't go back and change time. That's it. That's it. Right. So when you found minimalism and you started, you know, seeing all of the idealistic images with the white walls and black furniture and very, very simplified spaces, you had felt like that didn't, that wasn't going to work for you. Right. Well, I thought it was going to be wonderful for me. Okay. <laughs> it was actually quite <laughs> shocking that when I, you know, married these images that I saw online that I just coveted so much. And I was like, oh, this really feels sterile. This doesn't feel like home. This doesn't feel like me. Right. And that's when I was like, oh, I'm going to have to do minimalism my way if this is ever going to work. Right. Like, I need color, I need textures, I need, um, you know, elements of, of uh, you know, ancestral things that ground me, that uplift me. Um, and so that's how I came up with, you know, Afro minimalism. <laughs> I was like, it's minimalism, but with an Afro twist, this is my thing, you know. Um, but in retrospect, what I was doing was, you know, what I encourage so many people now to do, which is, you know, 
create a minimalist practice and lifestyle that works for you, right? My biggest thing is, you know, you always have to choose authenticity over aesthetics, okay? Because the aesthetics of mainstream minimalism and, and, you know, understandably there's the images are so beautiful and simplistic and it's what initially draws so many people to even consider it as a lifestyle, but, you know, it really is just an aesthetically pleasing version of, of minimalism, right? It is not a version that is going to work, um, for most people, right? For some people it will work. They want their all whites, stark Scandinavian decor and it is like <laughs> their dream, right? And that's yeah. great. That works for them. But, you know, you have to figure out what is my authentic style? What in terms of decor, in terms of, in terms of my wardrobe, right? And you can't really do that until you go through the process of letting go what no longer serves you, right? It's how I discovered my affinity for jumpsuits and dresses, right? Like it took me whittling through all the stuff in my wardrobe and me realizing like, I don't really want the responsibility of having to think about what top am I pairing with what bottom? Yes. <laughs> like I, I just that. already have so many things to think <laughs> about during the day. Um, and I was like, oh, so my authentic style is definitely more one piece ensembles. And that is what the majority of my closet is. And it, it helps me too. Like when I go out and I, I see, cause you're undoubtedly always going to see something beautiful. I'm like, Oh, what a beautiful top. I'm like, yeah, you don't like pairing tops and bottoms. So, you know, <laughs> like it's just, yeah. 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 Whereas before, you know, when you're in this sort of this mindless consumption space and always trying to get a deal and, you know, just, all over the place, but in terms of like your spending habits and behaviors, you're more inclined to get the shirt. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, oh, it's a great shirt. So cute. It's on sale. Next thing you know, you have the shirt, you don't have a bottom. Oh, you know what? I can see those cute pair of pants, right? Like it accumulates <laughs> so fast, um, you know? And so again, that's why that power of pause is, is, is pretty powerful, you know? Yeah. What's this why? What's the why behind this why? (laughs) Yes. And I really, I appreciate your emphasis on understanding your why and not just maybe diving right in and getting rid of stuff, but really understanding how you got to be where you are. And for you, you have a big emphasis and understanding of how consumerism is different in the black culture than it might be in the white culture. And I really appreciated learning more about that in your book. Oh, I'm, I'm glad you did. Yeah. I mean, you know, as I stated, like the for, for the culture pages are just for marginalized communities, some additional considerations that, you know, mainstream minimalism just does not acknowledge. Um, and that's primarily because there are just not a, a lot of marginalized voices uh, in, in that space. Um, but, you know, I also wanted those statistics and facts and that information to be there for other communities as well, right? And it makes you just more aware of, you know, targeted advertising and marketing, right? It makes you so much more aware of, oh, this is why, you know, this community, even though it could be like right near you, right? Like this is why this community looks different. This is why the ads in this community look different. This is like, it's it's very startling and shocking. Um, and of course, for my community, I just want them to be, much more conscious and aware of, of how um, they are targeted as consumers. And they are one of, you know, 
the largest population of consumers with um, the lowest income levels, right? And, and earning potential. So, you know, it's, it's just time to really, you know, shift this conversation and narrative uh, about minimalism beyond just things and decluttering, right? Because it's yeah. so much more than our things, right? Like, it's so much more than our things. It's, it's the why it's the, you know, really figuring out what aspects from my childhood have I brought into adulthood? How am I giving in to conspicuous consumption or mindless consumption, right? Like it's so much more than just let me figure out which tops and bottoms I don't want. Right. Um, you know, in order to really, really, uh, achieve and maintain this lifestyle, you have to know yourself. You have to know yourself. Yeah. One of the things that I read that I didn't know, which is giving me some new perspective is that people in marginalized communities have unhealthy relationships with credit and are often preyed upon by financial institutions. And Mm -hmm. for me as a white person, that's not something that I've been impacted by in the same way. And I just have had no awareness of it and that, and how that factors into consumerism is, is just fascinating to consider. Yeah. Predatory lending is really, um, it's, it's gotten better, but it's still pretty prevalent in, uh, marginalized communities. Uh, it definitely was even worse when I was growing up. Um, you know, as I shared in the book, I was born in 1976, right? So <laughs> I've like seen every, I remember the first video game and the first microwave. <laughs> and yeah. so we didn't have the internet and you were just kind of, um, beholden to what was going on in your community. Um, yeah, very, very targeted um, forms of, of predatory lending from, you know, offering money for, you know, a property that seems like it's worth nothing, but they know that the, you know, land area is going to be uh, used for, let's say, a waterfront development, right? Um, like, there's so many things that I just even saw in my lifetime. Um, and that actually happened uh, in my in my childhood community. I remember going to college and being like, I mean, we would, we had so many credit cards because all you had to do was just, uh, you know, every Wednesday they would be out at our local little market area offering you a free t-shirt or a free water bottle. Yeah. And, you know, you'd get your plastic card of money. You have no job. It's the best, you know? And like I said in the book, like I cringe thinking about how many 25 cent wing nights <laughs> were charged to a card with interest, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, like they're that sort of, uh, you know, those forms of predatory lending um, really have a lasting uh, impact on, on communities of, of uh, you know, marginalized communities. And so I do think it's important to understand uh, and acknowledge that and take all those things into consideration, um, you know, and, and when we think about, you know, financial equity and, and things of that nature. So yeah, I'm really glad you found that informative. Um, I've had a couple of people tell me that as well. Courtney, Courtney Carver and I were in conversation last night and, and she told me the same thing. She was like, I just did not know, like all these statistics, this is like, she was just so shocked. Right. right. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And I think from the cultural perspective too, there's something else that you wrote on one of your, for the culture pages that really struck me. You said, 
from our ancestors being stolen and once owned as property to our need to have things so that we feel we are in control of something in our lives. Black yeah. people have a different, deeper relationship with our belongings. Mm-hmm. And that that's, I've been reflecting on that one too. Yeah. You know, it's, I always uh, like to use the analogy of, um, or I guess the example rather of a person who has two Bibles, right? A black person who has two Bibles, a regular minimalist practitioner will come in and say, you don't need two Bibles. You only need one Bible. Why do you have two Bibles? Um, And, you know, a black person would say, this is my great grandmother's Bible. And it's very important. And sometimes I look through it and I look to see what passages she highlighted and what sustained her throughout her lifetime. And then this other Bible is my Bible. It's the Bible I take to church. It's the Bible that I'm highlighting my own passages in, right? So it's just like cultural considerations that, again, have to be addressed when we're talking about um, this being a lifestyle that's accessible to all. It's not as simple as going in and picking which Bible you want to keep. Right. You need both. Yeah. And I think coming up with any kind of one size fits all for minimalism, I think just it devalues that. It really does. And I honestly don't know where that came from because literally like every minimalist I know, (laughs) and I mean, I feel like I know quite a few now um, and not, not just, you know, minimalists who are black, right. White minimalists, like everyone has color. Everyone has like, I, I, I have no, I, it's just so fascinating to me how, you know, this 19, what fifties art design style became the face of a lifestyle. Um, <laughs> I, I don't yeah. understand because most minimalists practice being mindful, intentional consumers. They're not subscribing to a certain aesthetic, you know? So yeah. yeah, I still don't know where that came from. <laughs> I think it can be easy to get caught up in this idea that, you know, you see this picture online and you just need to replicate that picture. Like you need mm-hmm. that sofa and that piece of art, and then you will have that life if you can just yes. replicate it. And that seems almost like the easy way in some, in some aspects. I mean, if you have the yeah. credit for it. Well, it seems like the easy way, but again, you run the risk of doing that. And then discovering that looks great in that picture, but it doesn't feel good in your home, right? So like, that's how it was for me. I did the whole, I remember like I had white walls in my bedroom. I had white bedding. I had white curtains and I just walked in and I was like, oh, just walked in one day. Like, I cannot do this. (laughs) It looked beautiful in the photograph, right? (laughs) But it just, it just did not feel good to live in. And so I really caution people, you know, to, to subscribe to a certain minimalist aesthetic and make that their ideal and that their goal, right? I'm going to declutter so that my home can look like, you know, Josh and Ryan, right? Um, I love the minimalists. They're great. Um, Right. And it's like, you are not Josh or Ryan. (laughs) So it works for Josh and Ryan may not work for you. Right. And now you're stuck with an aesthetic and things that you don't like, you know? And so it's so important to, again, figure out that why, right. And then figure out what is my authentic style in terms of my decor, in terms of, you know, my wardrobe and, you know, minimalism. I tell people 
all the time, it's really a gateway to living with intention <laughs> because there's yeah. no way that you can just be intentional with your wardrobe and, you know, uh, your belongings and not have intention trickle into every area of your life. And so, you know, these are lessons in being intentional, right? Yeah. So, yeah. And sometimes we don't see it coming. I mean, I know I didn't, when I started decluttering my closet, I had no idea that once I made it, made my way through every closet in the house that I was going to start decluttering my calendar and my Mm -hmm. parenting style and my brain and all the things It just, it wasn't part of the plan, but I don't think I get to make the plan. Right. (laughs) Just kind of happens, but now there's no looking back and I wouldn't have it any other way. It just kind of happens. Yep. So tell me what's on the horizon for you after, after this book. Um, so I, (laughs) I have two projects, uh, and it's so funny. Uh, all of them started during the pandemic. So wild. Um, so I wrote the Afro minimalist guide to living with less, um, during the pandemic. So within a year, um, I have a new children's series that will be coming out in spring 2023 called Frankie at five. And Frankie is a little news reporter. She's so cute. Um, her, both of her, uh, well, her mom is also a reporter. And so what she likes to do is have, she has her own little news show. And it's just a way for me to, you know, talk to kids and, and teach kids about journalism, Um, a way for them to see news through their eyes and their perspective, right? Because breaking news could be, you know, a missing tooth, (laughs) right? (laughs) This is like breaking news, right? Um, So that's really fun to write, uh, Frankie at Five. And then just recently, uh, me and one of my dearest friends, uh, Catherine Wigington-Green, we just signed a deal to write... uh, I don't even know what genre to call it, but it is fiction. It's adult fiction, Um, but it's called Rebecca, Not Becky. And um, it's centered on um, two moms, one who's black and one who's white, like me and Catherine, (laughs) and um, just how they manage um, their lives and their families in the the midst of uh, a racial reckoning uh, in this country. And you know, we both work as anti-racism trainers and facilitators and have for a very long time. And this is just such a wonderful opportunity for us to, you know, get folks to see themselves and to like, again, just like with minimalism, like, let's have some real conversations here. You know, like, I feel like we're all just like (laughs) dancing around the issue. Right. And it's just like, let's have some real conversations about our own biases and prejudices and like, Let's talk about all of, you know, the things that we're not talking about or that we're talking about with our friends because we're scared to say it online because we don't want to be called racist. And, you know, like it's just, yeah. So we're having a lot of fun um, so writing that That's book. a novel? It is. It's okay. a novel. Yeah, I it's a novel. That. I can't wait. When, when it's is that? so What's fun. What's the timeline for that? <laughs> um, that is also 2023. So that will be coming out in January 2023. Um, yeah, and it's really fun writing a book with your friend. And yeah, it's just been great. And, and again, we just have so much, um, you know, we're both moms. We've both worked in the anti-racism space for a long time. And we just have so much um, in so many ways that we can teach 
Um, I'm a big fan of uh, teaching through fiction. <laughs> it's just easier for people to <laughs> accept and see themselves and, and, you know, find things relatable. So, so yeah. Yes. And you mentioned teaching through fiction. And I have to say that teaching adults through children's fiction and children's just literature in general is a real thing that I never realized until I was an adult and I have learned so much through my kids' books. So I feel like not They're only so are you reaching good. kids, but you're definitely reaching a whole generation of adults who may not have otherwise sought out the adult version of these books. Yeah. And you know, I, I first discovered it uh, actually in law school in my legal research and writing class. Uh, <laughs> it was our first assignment uh, was to read about the three little pigs, that whole story, but from the wolf's perspective, right? Oh, I teaching remember us. that. I've seen, I've read remember? that. Before. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So funny, but you know, like getting us to understand how you can have the same set of facts, the same people be there witnessing it and having very different experiences. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I love, I love children's literature. Um, and I love, I love writing fiction. I, I just think it's a, a really powerful teaching tool. In the Anna and Andrew series, is that complete now as you're starting the new one? It is, you know, I, and it's, I, I say it like that because I just, oh, I feel, you know, it's hard. I mean, you, you grow with your characters, you grow mm -hmm. with your young readers. You know, I, I have a wall just full of like beautiful cards and pictures and letters that, you know, little ones have sent to Anna and Andrew and, oh, it's just like, oh, but I just keep telling myself, okay, they can read, you know, Frankie at five, you know, most yeah. of them will have aged up to that book by then as well. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's bittersweet. I love them. I mean, 16 books for that series is wonderful. Like what more, an accomplishment. you know, yes. yeah, <laughs> could I ask for it's like, what more could I do? Um, but yeah, I, I really love that series. And you know, that, that was also a teaching tool for, for parents and adults. I mean, I heard from so many parents who were just like, thank you for writing about this, you know, in this way. Thank you for teaching history from a place of joy. Thank you for, you know, allowing us to have just the language and tools to answer some of the questions that we may be asked, you know? Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's a very special series to me. Um, but Frankie at five is as well. I am, I love Frankie. I got to see my first sketch of her the other day and I was just like, oh my God, I love her. So yeah. How exciting. More fun coming. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I'm going to put links to all of your books in the show notes and I can't wait to see what, what is to come in 2023 for you. And hopefully you take some time off in the rest of 21, 2021 and 22. Ah, oh, I wish, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's actually divine timing. I mean, my daughter has off to Penn state in the fall and, you know, I was going to have a lot of time on my hands to just fill it with stories. And, um, yeah, no, I love, I love the life that I live and I just feel incredibly grateful, um, to, to be able to do what I do. So no, no break breaks like that, but I will definitely make time to take care of myself. And as you know, nap, I love napping. Yes. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Christine. Thank you. Have a good one. Thanks again for tuning in. And I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Christine. 
You can find her online at The Afro Minimalist, and her books can be found on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or even better, at your local independent bookstore. If you've been interested in trying out the Mental Unload, which is the program that I run three times a year to focus on mental clutter, you're in luck. We're starting again on July 15th. So put that on your calendar. You can get on the wait list at simplefamilies.com forward slash unload. As always, thanks for tuning in and have a good one.